Welcome to the first ever actual episode of Up at Night. Thank you for joining me, if you know me, and if you don't know me, thank you for joining me too. And if you're my dad, hi. I know that you're listening. I'm filming the closet because there's no sound, and it's very, like, condensed. I don't have to worry about, like, yelling and waking up my parents. But, because I'm having all those benefits, I'm also sweating so profusely. I kind of just wanted to take a moment and introduce myself for those of you who may not really know me or may just have seen me tweet about this too many times and were like, ah, might as well check that out. Uh, I am Grayson Porter. I am 20 years old. I'm a Capricorn. Um, oh wow, I'm actually trying to think of things that like I would want someone to know about me. I have a lizard. I have a lizard named Albus. She's currently asleep. I just like writing and I like true crime and I like video games and I like my lizard. I'm also a big Harry Potter fan but I'm sure that'll come up eventually. But today we are not talking about lizards or writing or Harry Potter. We are going to be talking about a murder. What murder? I'm glad you asked. So today we are going to be talking about the Lover's Lane murders that happened in Houston, Texas in 1990. Before we get into the murder though, for like the third time, I am just going to say, I know a lot of people that do true crime podcasts don't really do like trigger warnings, but I personally think that it's something that I'm going to implement in my own podcasting narrative, just because I think that there's so many different true crime stories. You may not want to hear one that has to do with sexual assault. You don't have to. There are a lot that don't have to, that don't involve that. So I just, I want to just say my little piece and say that if you don't want to listen to this podcast because the story isn't something that you would feel comfortable listening to, that's okay. There are other podcasts. One day I may even have more episodes and you can take a choice from them. But if, you know, if you don't like it, it's okay. <laughs> so today's Lover's Lane murder, the trigger warning for it is going to be involving some slight beheadings and sexual assault. And with that, I guess we're just gonna jump right into it. Oh my goodness. I'm gonna keep on changing my positions and just drinking too much water. So currently in front of me on my laptop, I have a picture of the two victims, uh, Cheryl Henry, who was a gorgeous blonde girl. Oh man, she was so pretty. She was 22 year old, she's a student from SFA. Her stepsister even recalled her to saying that she wasn't the type of girl who got worked up over a boy, but something about the other victim, Garland Andy Atkinson, who I'm just going to be calling Andy, uh, was just like, she just really felt head over heels for him. Uh, they'd only known each other for about two weeks before the night of the murder, so it wasn't like a super long, strung out relationship, which is actually really heartbreaking. Uh, so Garland... So Andy, who was 21 at the time, he was actually an aspiring model who moved to Houston from North Carolina after going to Campbell University whenever he decided to move closer to his paternal family. So the date was at Bayou Mama's Nightclub, and it was actually a double date with Henry's younger sister, Shane Henry Blaine. They all had a drink together with her and her boyfriend, who I couldn't find any names to, uh, but... They all got a drink together and she could remember just 
feeling that they were really like into each other. She remembered just constantly teasing them about getting a room and, you know, those fun sister stuff. Asha Doublet ended the couple, Cheryl and Andy, went to Lover's Lane in West Houston for some privacy. Uh, because of that, though, there was no eyewitnesses and they were in a secluded area far from any populous, like, zones. So describing the murder is actually Michael Meyer, an H a Houston Police Department homicide investigator um, who inherited the case from his predecessor, uh, I think his name is Detective Belt, I'm sorry, I forgot to write down his name, but he said that basically somebody came up on them, tied them up, and marched them out of the woods. And what's unfortunate is that the entire time the two were fully aware that they were probably going to die, which I cannot even begin to imagine how terrifying that would be, but we'll get into kind of more of that later. So the next day came around, and nobody heard from them, and Cheryl's mom knew that something was wrong. She knew that that wasn't okay, and she knew that, that like, right away she knew that something had happened. So she reported them missing, and the next day Andy's white Honda Civic was discovered by a patrol officer in an isolated cul-de-sac. Inside the car was fresh blood and no sign of a body anywhere. The keys were still in the ignition and there was a cassette tape in the stereo. Next to the car, there was a golf club and three golf balls all pointing away from the car. It said there are some reports that were claiming that this was kind of like the killer's calling card, but I personally not too sure about that. It seems more, it just makes more sense to me that it was just two like teenagers goofing off and just hitting around some golf balls. like. I don't know. It just, to me, that kind of makes more sense, especially because there was nothing else about golf balls anywhere else. There was no, like, it wasn't like golf ball themed murder. It was just, there were just some golf balls. And the police report talked about it. And since I'm just trying to retail that information, I just thought I'd bring it up too. Oh, and about the golf balls, there were actually, like, there was a golf club in Andy's car. So that also kind of brings up the idea that the couple was just kind of just chilling out before everything happened. It is also just kind of a, a fun little thing to think about them just enjoying their time together before, you know, it gets really sad. So in the direction of the golf balls around 200 yards from the vehicle, they discovered Cheryl Henry's body. The killers, the killer or the killers, attempted to hide the body with some boards from a cedar fence that was nearby, but she wasn't, she wasn't really hidden from plain sight. It was more so like they tried to hide her as an afterthought. She was found face down with her hands tied behind her back and her clothes were cut off. But the thing that I find interesting about the way she was found is she was actually tied up with hemp rope. And if you, if you know anything about ropes the way I do and totally didn't just Google it for this one reason, hemp rope is strong. It's a rope that's typically used for marine activity and for survivalists, and I don't know, I just thought that was an interesting little part to me. But I am also not a rope expert, and each time I've tried to find out more about hemp rope, like how it was made in like the 1990s, and how easy it was to find in the 1990s, and who sold them in the 1990s, all I got back was a bunch of ads and information about weed. So clearly, that was a dead end for me. So, just gonna move on with the story. Whenever she was found, she, after she had been found, it was revealed that she had been sexually assaulted before the killer slashed her throat three times and left a $20 bill laying by her body. 
The day after Cheryl was found, Andy was found tied to a tree. His throat also had been slashed so severely he was nearly decapitated. In an interview with Garland Atkinson Sr., police told that they were able to surmise that Andy let himself be tied up, probably under a ruse that the killers put up, maybe offering that Cheryl would be spared or something, something that would make it seem like this was the only option for him. And that also means that he just had to sit and watch as Cheryl was sexually assaulted and murdered, which that just, oh, that just sucks. Also, I need to mention one more time, it is so hot in my closet, I think that I am dying of dehydration. Is that something you can say in a true crime podcast? I feel like it might be a little bit insensitive. If it is, I'm sorry, but it is so hot. Like, typically during the day, my room's like a good 90, and now in this closet, it's like a thousand degrees. Okay, I'm gonna move on. (laughs) So, uh, whenever they found Andy's body, he was actually found with all of his money still intact, so that meant that there was no money taken from him. Uh, There was the $20 bill that was found by Cheryl, wasn't taken from his wallet. They realized that the people the people or the person, the people that killed him, that killed the couple were definitely not trying to rob them and it was definitely a malicious act. And despite there being DNA evidence at the crime scene, there was never any matching suspects until, ow, I popped my shoulder. <laughs> um, it was discovered that two months before the attack, a man in a dark uniform, the victim kind of described it as being like, looking almost like a security uniform and black gloves and fishnet stockings to cover up his face, broke into and sexually assaulted an exotic dancer in her home. Uh, she doesn't have a name, uh, totally makes sense protecting her identity, so I'm just gonna call her Deborah. No idea why, just decided it right now, going with it. But despite not knowing the man, though it is speculated that she might have at least, like, kind of knew him through her work, but we'll talk about her work in a minute. Um, Deborah was able to help police construct a composite sketch. And after, and years after the murders of uh, Cheryl and Andy, the DNA from the case were uh, tested from the DNA that was found on Cheryl, and it was a match. But this time, the attacker actually did take cash from Deborah, which is kind of breaking like an MO, but it could have just been a one-time thing. I don't know, I'm not gonna make excuses for this guy either way, he's a scumbag. (sighs) So, in 2001, the only other shred of hope that the family and the police did get was from an anonymous note that stated that if the police wanted the killer, they would have to pay up $10,000. Reportedly, the police did look into this claim, but nothing ever came of it, which is kind of predictable and heartbreaking at the same time. I personally think that the two reasons that this happened is it's either just some scumbag kids who just didn't, I don't know, didn't have anything else to do on a Saturday night and wanted to be scumbag kids, or it could have actually been somebody who knew something about the murders but was scared off by the murders. That's kind of where my brain was at whenever I found out about this information. So, 
there was only one possible connection between the two victims would be that would be that Cheryl was supposedly working at a bar similar to the topless bar that Deborah worked at. I have spent around I'd say a total of three days researching for this case and I've had like 20 reports being like yes she worked at a topless bar that's how like the connection was made and then I also have read two reports saying that she was actually a dental hygienist at the time and that there was no connection between the two and that talking about the topless bar is just ruining her image so I I personally am going to go into this with the thought that she did work at the strip club because of police records and because of general knowledge about the case and from my good friends at Reddit. Let's just roll with that idea. Am I? No, I didn't. That'd be so funny if I unplugged the microphone. Okay, so the only possible connection between the three were actually that Deborah worked at a exotic, I think it was a topless bar, and Cheryl worked at a topless bar, and Andy actually was a sometimes worked as a bodyguard and a like a bouncer kind of for similar joints around the area I thought was kind of interesting. I've reached the state where my laptop is now 100 degrees and my ice cold water has defawed but hey I'm still here I'm still kicking. I want to talk about Cheryl and Andy. Okay. So it can be speculated that either this murderer was A, just killing for the sake of killing, and that Andy and Cheryl were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and that Deborah's was actually like a planned thing, or it could be something similar to just wrong place, wrong time. But I will say that does kind of make it kind of harder because Deborah claimed that he knew the name of her boyfriend. So it was either that or the killer knew about the couple and also knew about Deborah. It said that it's possible that the killer either knew Cheryl through her job at the club, which would make sense with the $20 bill being left at her body, uh, kind of to like mock her or to treat her like a prostitute, or they may have known Andy from being a security guard to a similar club. A group of Redditors are currently theorizing that the rapist was either a like a regular to the strip joints around town and knew all the victims, including a woman named Tara Breckenridge, actually, who was a waitress at another strip-like club, um, who was last seen talking to a security guard at 1am on August 4th, uh, two years after the Lover's Lane murders. But she went missing and remains are never found, still a missing person case to this day. Uh, if she was talking to a bodyguard, it could kind of match with what Deborah said about the intruder being somebody dressed up in like a dark outfit, but I'm not sure because again, this is all speculation. It is important to point out that if all these acts were done by the same murderers slash attackers, then his MO did switch up a lot. First, they broke into someone's home and bound the victim while holding a gun to her head and put a pillowcase over her head while also disconnected the phone lines. Which for somebody to do that, they have to at least have more than a basic idea of how to cover up their tracks. They have to at least be, I wouldn't, I don't want to say they have to at least be kind of, talented is not the proper word for this sentence. I'm actually going to Google 
a synonym for prop for talented because I feel uncomfortable calling a rapist talented. Okay, synonyms for talent, savvy. Yeah, no, that's also kind of weird. Sounds makes me sound like a pirate. I don't like that. Aptness, and yeah, aptness makes sense. But anyways, you know what I mean? Like somebody doesn't just do all that just for the first time they ever commit a heinous act like the way that he covered up his tracks is you can't just one-off do this and put that much effort into it and just kind of you know i, I make sense that makes sense <laughs> but the second case with the with cheryl and andy in lover's lane uh the killer used a knife and rope instead of duct tape since the couple were also going for some alone time meaning that he would have to follow and wait for them to show up and this would also mean that he would have to be able to plan to know where they were going to be to even know that they were going to show up if it wasn't just a dumb luck he found them and decided to kill them right then and there it would take a lot more like meticulous planning and some stalking the only place they would have been able to trap them would be in Axon's car there was no forced entry or exit, so he could have cornered them whenever they were playing golf outside of his car. Like, there were other ways that he could have kind of ambushed them, but it's hard to imagine a situation where neither of them would have fought back. So something had to have been at stake. They also could have fought back. I just am going off of the fact that Andy let himself be tied up to the tree. Ooh. Ooh, I just got one of those really weird chills over your shoulders. Ooh, I don't like that. Oh, especially since I've been complaining about sweating. Ooh, I want to get out of this closet. Ooh. <laughs> so all of this uh, could have been the start to another serial killer's career, or it could have just been an inconsistent killer, which is possible. It's likely it's happened before and it will happen again. Until someone steps forward with information about the killer, which I believe that someone has to have some type of information at this point, there is going to be no closure for any of the victims, for any of the victims' families. The families of Cheryl and Andy that are living on and trying to respect their memory and respect the people that they were don't get the closure that they deserve to move on with their life and to heal, and the victims don't get the closure that they deserve, which is just sad. And I do believe that at this point, there has to be more information out there about this murder since Oh, what year is it? It's, it's 2019. I'm so bad at basic math. With the murder being 25 years ago, there has to be some other information that, that's out right now, maybe like a relative or a family member that just haven't stepped out yet. And I think that's insanely sad. And I think my heart goes out to the families and to the victims. I just really hope that someday they are given the closure that they deserve. Every single report that I read about Cheryl and Andy just painted them to be the nicest people. They just seemed like they really liked each other. They just started going out, so they weren't like in love or anything, but they definitely did have a very promising future uh, together and as individuals, and it's unfortunate that they weren't able to fulfill that future that was entailed for them, and instead some, some dickhole decided that he had the right to play God, which is never the case, and I hope that someday he is brought to justice, whether it is in this life or in the next life. So, man, how do you end one of these positively? I guess I'll just talk about something good. <laughs> um, 
uh, college is starting soon for me. I'm actually currently the reason that I'm up so late. What time is it right now? It's just just 12.22. Uh, I've been packing all day. I've been having kind of those last few meals with my friends. I actually, like, I think two hours ago got back from a meal with my best friend who's going to college this weekend. And I've just kind of been getting ready to go. I've been packing up my lizard and I've been getting all my clothes ready and I've been buying all those last minute items that you need for college. And it's super stressful, but I'm excited to be back and also excited for the future this podcast holds for me. I am going to try and upload every week, but if I don't, then you will know because I won't upload. I don't know. I also probably post about it on my Twitter. My Twitter handle is It's Gracie though. I think that's really it. I think that's kind of all I got for this today's episode. I know it's kind of short. I just kind of wanted something to kind of just bring us all into the space where we can hang out together in my dingy closet and talk about a heinous crime, which whenever I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be good. Like it's something that I love to learn about, something I love to talk about. I love talking about theories and I love like trying to bring light to the victims' lives and like try to find, I don't know, like something that makes sense in my brain. But in reality, it is also kind of sad. You know, I'm not a detective and I'm also not a police officer. So if all I can do is to just talk about some murders in front of a microphone in my closet after midnight and bring light to these crimes and light to these victims, that's what I'm going to do. So thank you for joining me on this first ever episode of Up at Night, and I will see you 